Well, welcome to this session with Grace Point Church. We are glad you're joining us here through uh, technology. And we are thankful that our church family's with us, as well as uh, any guests who have found us here today online. Uh, as we continue our study through the letter to the Colossian Church, if you have your copy of God's Word, and if you'd like to take notes, uh, a writing instrument and some paper, and we will continue with our study through this letter to the Colossian believers. Uh, this morning I was thinking about uh, the great sculptor, the Renaissance master, Michelangelo. And uh, if we were able to uh, get on the Grace Point jet and fly to Florence, Italy, we'd go to a museum there and there would be a number of sculptures that are unfinished. Michelangelo began them. And in that museum, these are partially finished blocks of mar marble. And there's a figure that Michelangelo carved in each one of these blocks, and they were intended originally to be used on a tomb that was a project that he was working on. But in the middle of this project, uh, he was uh, given orders to start painting the Sistine Chapel and the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. And so the work was ceased on these blocks of marble and these figures that he started to carve into them. But if we were to go there, we would view these uh, objects of art and we would see just parts of a human anatomy poking out of the block of marble. There'd be a hand here, a leg there, a torso there, a head, but none of them are finished. And nearly everyone that sees the works senses a sense of turmoil and the struggle embodied in these figures trying to break free from the block of marble. In fact, they're called the captives is what they're called. They seem to be crying out to free themselves from this prison of the marble that they're in, that they were not intended to be staying in. In fact, one author, Theodore Roeder, upon viewing these at the museum in Florence, he wrote this about Michelangelo's unfinished works. He looked at these four figures and he wrote, when I looked at those partial figures, they stirred up in me a deep longing to be completed an ape to be set free from that which distorts and disguises, imprisons, and inhibits my humanness, my wholeness. But as, as with these statues, I cannot liberate myself. For that I need the hand of another. And so there's a sense in which you and I are incomplete in one sense because we live in our condition in this life and we recognize as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that there has to be some completion. Every, day's, every day of our lives, it seems like there's a certain amount of tedium that goes with it. We desire the spirituality uh, that is promised to us in Scripture. But spirituality is not some esoteric knowledge or some exciting experience or some extreme legalism. Spirituality is the development of our character. Spirituality is the integrity in all of our relationships with things and with others. Spirituality is the obedience in the ordinary things of life, in the day-to-day -day things. It's husbands loving their wives, wives respecting their husbands, children honoring their parents, and parents loving their children. It's employees doing good work at their jobs, and it's employers being fair and honest with their employees. All of life is spiritual. There are no categories of secular and spiritual. Really, when you think about it, everything has a spiritual tenet to it. 
As one author said, remember these things the next time you're doing the dishes or mowing the lawn. All things have a spiritual aspect and an importance to them. You know, without a heavenly perspective or a godly perspective, ordinary activities really do seem kind of tedious. And by looking above and looking around us and obeying what God has called us to here in this life, ordinary activities take on really a grander significance as we look at God's Word and Scripture. If you take your copy of God's Word and find this uh, little epistle, this letter to the church at Colossae, Colossians in your New Testament, and the Apostle Paul is writing it, or did write it from imprisonment in Rome. <clears throat> he had not been to Colossae, but his faithful co-worker Epaphras, who probably planted the church in Colossae in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, had come to Rome and reported on the church and reported that there was false teaching that was invading the church and people were upset and being uh, derailed away from the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so today we come to chapter 3 and as I have said before, a broad outline of the letter to the church at Colossae is chapters 1 and 2, what Christ has done. It's all about Jesus Christ. If you reread those two chapters and just underline everything, every time it mentions what Jesus has done, it is just a, a stunning display of the divinity and the power of God. And then here in chapters three and four, the application comes in light of what Jesus Christ has done in chapters one and two. Now, here is the application to our day-to-day -day lives because of what Christ has done. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we look back at the wonder of his rescue of us from eternal damnation. And we, it should just cause us to be staggered by his grace and stunned by what he's done. And it should change our lives and our behavior. So chapters three and four, in light of what Christ has done and what Paul has revealed to us in chapters one and two, how then should we live or applying the truth or this is what we need to do. And so these chapters uh, are just powerful reminders and instructive for us in life today. In chapter 3, the Apostle Paul writes in verse 1, Therefore, if you've been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It's all about Jesus Christ. When you read Colossians, it's about his supremacy, his superiority. Uh, the false teachers were denying that. And so the Apostle Paul is telling us that this is the true way, this is the way. And of course, false teaching wasn't just relegated to the first century when the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, but we're surrounded with it today, even more so perhaps, uh, because we have such technological advances that we can uh, just get all sorts of teaching on the internet and through the media around us. Let me read the passage we're going to cover today. We covered verses 1 through 4 in our last session. Today we will be looking at verses 5 through 11. I will begin in verse 5 of chapter 3 of Colossians. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to the immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them, but now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self 
who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together today. Thank you for your word in our own language. Thank you that uh, you are with us and that uh, you are guiding us and leading us through the power of your word and your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for never leaving us or forsaking us. Pray for each one viewing uh, this, uh, this message that we would allow your Holy Spirit to apply it to our lives as you see fit. For Jesus Christ's powerful name we pray, amen and amen. Well, these final two chapters, the Apostle Paul is moving into what we call the practical application of doctrinal truths. It's the ethical section of how we should then live. You know, it does little good for us as Christians to declare and defend the truth, but not demonstrate it in our lives. And God's will for us is that we not deny the reality of the spiritual life in our day-to-day -day living. Beginning in chapter 3, verse 1, he begins this ethical section. We looked at that first part last week. And basically, a summary is, is let your position in Christ reflect in your condition in life. Let me repeat that. Let your position in Christ reflect in your condition in life. In other words, in your day-to-day -day life. Christ has changed our life. Therefore, it's up to us to change our lifestyle with the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives as he has promised. Change starts by discarding what is old, what we used to be before we believed in Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul employs two graphic metaphors in this passage I've just read, which we will unpack here in a minute. The first one is putting something to death, that we are dead to something. And secondly, there's the picture of putting off old, filthy clothes and putting on new clothes. This is a, going to be a two-part message. This first part is verses 5 through 11. The second part will be verses 12 through 17. The first part uh, includes this putting off, putting off the old, filthy grave clothes. And then the second part will talk about the virtues that Jesus Christ, Christ's likeness, that we put on in this walk of our Christian life. Remember in verses one through four, very briefly, there were two commands for us. In verse, <clears throat> excuse me, verse one, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The first command is keep seeking. In other words, persevere. In, in verse two, set your mind on the things above, not the things that are on earth. And so these two commands are controlling what we see as the application of chapters one and two and all that that contains. And why should we do that? Those commands, why is it that we should do that? Well, there are three uh, things that he tells us, three positional foundational truths. These are the foundations of the spiritual life, of what it means to be walking in Christ. In verse three, you've died in your life, you have died, past tense. When you believed in Jesus Christ, positionally, you were dead to your old self. You are no longer who you used to be. You are a new creature in Christ. The second one is present tense, and your life is hidden with Christ. In other words, we are safe, secure in Christ, and it's a present tense, ongoing uh, action here. And in future tense, in verse 4, you will also be revealed with him in glory. So past, present, and future. 
These are the reasons why, because of our position in Christ, how God the Father sees us in Jesus Christ. And so we come to that, and we come to verses 5 through 7, and we're going to see that we're to consider ourselves dead to sinful actions. Consider ourselves dead to sinful actions. And this is really kind of a summary view of what is declared in Paul's epistle of the Romans, Romans chapter 6. I call it the sin-breaking <clears throat> chapter. If you turn back to Romans chapter 6, I just want to, want to emphasize three verbs, three action words there. First one is found in verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. So there's a knowledge, there's the starts with the mind. The Apostle Paul always starts with our thinking, knowing this. And then up in verse 11, even so, consider yourselves dead to sin. There's a consideration, there's this knowledge that based in real attitude about who we are, and then in, excuse me, in verse 13, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. And it's an interesting antinomy, if you will, two truths that seem opposite that are taught here in scripture. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. And then he goes on here in verse one, we are to consider ourselves dead. We are to put to death the practices of the past. Uh, there are several images used in the New Testament to portray the Christian life. The believer is to be disciplined like an athlete who strives to win the prize. We see that in 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. The believer is also a picture of a faithful soldier who endures hardship to please his commanding officer, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Also believers, a third thing is we are called tenacious wrestlers. Uh, engaged in a fierce struggle with the crafty foe, Ephesians chapter 6. But here Paul is telling us that we as believers are to be a ruthless executioner, a ruthless executioner who eliminates the behaviors of the past. And what does it mean to consider yourself dead to something? Uh, it's when we leave those things behind, when we make the decision, when we know what is right to do, and we consider our position in Christ, and we say, I am no longer going to be a part of that lifestyle. I am no longer a part of that. Uh, there must be a decisive initial act introducing a settled attitude, putting something to death is never pleasant. We are to die to self. The Apostle Paul in this passage, he has two sets of vice lists. We call them vice lists in scripture. And there are five items on each vice list. We find the first one in verse five, and it has to do with perverted passions. Look at verse five with me. He said there again, therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead. What are we to be dead to? Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed which amounts to idolatry. And so these are the pictures that we are to be dead to, these perverted passions. Immorality is the word we get, we get the word English word pornography from, it's pornea, and it means fornication, illicit sexual conduct. Impurity in any form, especially in the wider sexual perversion of our age, is in this context. Passion or lust is uncontrollable erotic passion. This is perverted passions, and it's a momentary thing that comes upon us that we allow. Fourthly, evil desire is illicit cravings. This is an ongoing pattern 
in one's life. And then greed is coveting any materialistic desire, including lust, that puts God in second place. Uh, that's idol worship because it seeks satisfaction in the things below, not things above. All of these things, when we practice these sins, this vice list, it is idolatry. It is putting something ahead of our relationship and the supremacy of Jesus Christ in our lives. When we lived in the upper Midwest, uh, a friend of mine, uh, he had a business where he would uh, go and uh, barbecue, uh, whether it was chickens or pork or anything for large gatherings, big picnics in the summer uh, for churches and different, different people. Well, one, one weekend, one uh, early Saturday morning, I went with them. Uh, they have a thing back there called Breakfast on the Farm. It was so the people from the city uh, could come out to a farm. In this case, it was a large, large dairy farm. And they could tour the farm and get an understanding of where their food in the grocery stores comes from. And so we would make breakfast. Our, our role was just to, to cook the sausages, the link sausages for breakfast. And on that day we fried or we, we, we barbecued 12,000 link sausages, if you can imagine. He had a gigantic barbecue pit built. And we just, uh, for, from 4.30 in the morning, until about 8, 8.30 in the morning, we were cooking sausages. When I first got there, oh, I was hungry, and, and the aroma of those sausages cooking, wow. I just wanted that, wanted more. But after about a two hours of smelling those things, of that aroma hitting me in the face, and the heat from the barbecue and, and everything, uh, it, was, it was not so inviting, and I had no desire to eat another sausage that day. You know, sin is like that initially, it is very inviting, it's enticing, but you're gripped by, when it grips your life like this, then it overwhelms you and traps you. And these sexual sins, these perverted passions that Paul lists here are common today, just like they were in the first century. We're more exposed to them than ever. And, if, uh, and, and even Christians tend to accept some practices and overlook the error of those who follow them. The apostle says there's two things wrong with accepting this kind of a lifestyle. The first reason Paul gives in verse 6, and the reason is, is that God's wrath is coming on account of these things. Look at verse 6. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. God's wrath is coming on account of these things. Uh, it's translated the fact that the wrath has already begun, that the, the way this tense of this verb that's used here. And uh, he who believes that the Son is eternal life, but he who does not believe, obey the Son, shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John 3.36. It will, of course, culminate in a future climactic visitation on evil, according to Romans 2 and 1 Thessalonians 1. So what do you think of when you think of God's wrath? I think most people probably think about, or when you read about the wrath of God, you think that God is having some kind of a divine temper tantrum, or he's just, uh, you know, like some of my friends used to say, he's having a hissy fit, or that God is becoming unreasonably anger, angry and vindictive and strikes people da down with lightning bolts or whatever. But scripture declares that the wrath of God is simply his judicial reaction to evil. It is the way a holy God reacts to a civilization, a nation, or an individual who turns their backs on his moral absolutes and tries to ignore moral laws. Boy, isn't that a description of our current culture and society. 
And of course it always is. Every generation faces these things. So that's the first reason is the fact that God's wrath is coming on account of these things. Secondly, in verse 7, the second reason Paul gives is why as you as believers, remember Colossian is written to believers to save people who believe in Jesus Christ for everlasting life. Why go back to the way you used to live? Look at verse 7. And in them you all once walked when you were living in them. You basically are no longer who you used to be. I don't care if you believed in Jesus for everlasting life as I did when I was 28 years old, or maybe you were only five years old in Sunday school, but why go back to those things that would destroy us? We are new creations in Christ. Old things have passed away and sin's power has been broken, but because we will have within us the principle of indwelling sin, we must choose daily to live in accordance with our new identity. We have a new identity. You are no longer who you used to be. And so we need to recognize in verses five through seven that we need to consider ourselves to these sinful actions, this vice list. In verses eight through nine, we're to lay aside our old sinful attitudes. Here he changes the metaphor from an executioner to taking off old dirty clothes. When I returned home after that sausage cookout at that breakfast on the farm. Uh, after 12,000 sausages we, we, we barbecued that day, it was, I smelled like charcoal smoke. I was dirty. There was soot all over my clothes, grease, uh, just, and the smell of those things embedded my clothes. I could not wait to strip off those old dirty clothes and take a shower. And that's the call on our lives here. We're to strip off these practices and throw them away like a greasy, dirty set of clothes. Lay aside those old sinful attitudes. Look at verse 8. Throw, the, throw them aside like a dirty shirt, basically. But now you also put them all aside. And that phrase, put them all aside, is a command or an exhortation. And then here's the second vice list. This is the second vice list here. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. And so he's talking, first of all, the first three are hot tempers, hot tempers. Uh, perhaps you have an issue with anger. Perhaps you have a difficulty controlling your anger. Well, we are to put it off like these old dirty clothes. Anger is a chronic attitude of smoldering hatred, a verbal outburst of evil passion. Throw it aside like a dirty shirt. Wrath or rage is, the, is an acute outburst. Uh, it's rendered outburst of angers in, in Corinthians, fits of rage in Galatians. It is a settled attitude of hostility. When you think of road rage, all that's doing is somebody gets upset and they're allowing the rage to pour out of them. The third one in the hot temper is malice. The root of anger and rage is ill will. Have you ever thought of that? It is that silent, hidden hatred of the heart that takes revenge in secret. Remember the story of the waiter who took revenge upon his tormentors by spitting in their soup before he delivered it to their table. And so that if you metaphorically spit in anybody's soup, it's the act of revenge inspired by malice. So anger, wrath, malice, these first three in this, this vice list are hot tempers. Uh, the next ones are sharp tongues, sharp tongues. And so slander is injurious, rebellious speech. That is an attack on another person's character, whispering things about that person, whether true or untrue, that destroys their reputation in other people's eyes. 
That is slander. In fact, in our legal system, you can be sued for slander because even our legal system, the world recognizes that it is wrong, that it is slanderous. The fifth one in this vice list is abusive speech. It's a shameful and abrasive speech, filthy, disgraceful, dishonorable speech. Cursing falls under this category. And you know the temptation to do this. It's to be put away because it is not your identity anymore. And then we come to the verse 9 where there is this another command. and it's, it, it's the tail end of <clears throat> these sharp tongues. And it says, do not lie to one another. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Remember, you took off those dirty, filthy clothes of evil practices and you've laid them aside. So do not lie to one another and quit lying to others. Truthfulness is essential in followers of Christ, who is the truth, John 14, 6. Falsehood is perhaps the crowning sin of the tongue, since it is, contradicts the very nature of our Heavenly Father. According to Jesus, lying is the child of another father. A liar is the child of another father, Satan himself. Look at John 8, 44 through 45. He is the father of lies. And this goes just even way beyond verbal speech, but it goes on how we use social media, how we interact on the internet. I find it very distressing that many Christians think they can get away with falsifying the truth or resharing things that are absolutely untrue. We dare not do that, my brethren and sisteren. And so we don't want to be a child of Satan in that. And so when we consider ourselves dead to unholy lives and actions, why are we to do that? Why are we to throw away these unholy actions and attitudes? It's because it is not our real character, not our real identity. And so we are to put on our new identity. Look again at verse 9 through 11 here. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with evil practices. You got that? You took off those dirty clothes and now you have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. As a Christian in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are create new creatures in Christ. We are reformed. We have a renewal, verse 11, a renewal in which there's no distinction between all of these different parties. And so when we're rearing children to maturity, we tell them, don't try to be like somebody else. Just be yourself. You've got to be yourself. That You have an identity. We don't want to pretend that we're someone else. Uh, pretending to be somebody else is called acting, isn't it? A person is out of character when they're acting. And so as Christians, we're out of character when we revert back to those evil practices. And so how do we lay aside the old self and put on the new self? You know, garments in scripture are called habits. You know, we've used that term and throughout English history. Uh, the same expression when we speak of riding habits, of walking habits. Uh, an old man has uh, taken, <clears throat> the old man is, is to be taken off as a garment, uh, but putting it off is not enough. We have to put on a new habit, the power of the Holy Spirit, because we are new creatures in Christ. And in Christ, our differences are removed. In verse 11, and it's a very curious time because what it is, is it's, it's talking about, this isn't just about you as an individual, but this is talking about us 
as a corporate identity, as a community, as a family of Christ. Remember, the church is called the Bride of Christ. There's not a bunch of Brides of Christ. The church, made up of believers, is the Bride of Christ. And so we are, in a corporate sense, together, and there should not be these distinctions which separate us. In verse 11, these distinctions are removed, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman. Why? Because Christ is all and he is in all. So national distinctions and these nationalities, uh, those distinctions are erased in that sense. Religious distinctions, circumcised, uncircumcised. In this day, it was the Gentiles and the Jews in that day. Cultural distinctions. Uh, anybody foreign to the Greek culture was a barbarian and a Scythian who is a wild nomad, basically. And social distinctions, slave or free. And so these distinctions, and in our day and age, when there's such a racial divide in our country, we need to recognize that it's not going to be politicians or rules or laws or tearing down stuff that's going to change people's hearts. The only change that's going to really occur is when Jesus Christ opens our eyes to the truth of the gospel and the fact that we belong to him because Christ is all and in all. And we cannot use distinctions, whether they be racial or national or religious or cultural or social, uh, to divide us and make us like that. And so as individuals and as believing communities, our objective is to be part of the transformative process of being renewed in the knowledge and the image of our creator, Jesus Christ. And within the new community, all barriers are abolished. Distinctions that normally divide people, racial, religious, cultural, social, no longer have any significance because Christ is all and in all. It's because Christ is central and supreme. Our relationship with him is what really matters. Unity within the church in a community is based on the fact that Christ is all. And he indwells all believers and permeates all of our relationships doesn't mean we cease to be Jew or Gentile or slave or free, but the distinctions don't matter. We are to love one another. The false teachers at Colossae were fond of dividing people into categories, uh, the elite versus the ordinary, spiritual versus not so spiritual. The true is, truth is that all believers are equal in Christ, and we are to discard any and all behaviors, any biases and racial differences and attitudes that are inappropriate for who we are as Christians. You know, the world will never get it. Those who do not know Christ as Savior will never get it if they don't see it in an experience in our lives. This statement is one of the most inclusive statements, verse 11, in the New Testament. Christ is what we need for new birth. Christ is all we need to live righteously. He is our guarantee for the future. And so take inventory of your heart today. Uh, make sure you are committed to the daily faithfulness of the Lord. Perhaps you have a problem with immorality, with pornography. It is time to lay that aside. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, that can be done. Uh, greed, perhaps you're greedy for material things and money. Uh, it becomes idolatry. If you view these things as idol worship, it should sober you as a believer in Jesus Christ. Put those aside. Maybe you anger, math, slander. You want to punish others with your tongue or with your attitudes. Uh, perhaps you have a problem with telling the truth. We, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we need to lay that, those things aside because the Bible is authentic 
It is authoritative, it is accurate, and it always leads us to the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the superiority of Jesus Christ, and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Well, today we've focused a lot on what thou shalt not do. Next session, we will talk about what thou shalt do in the sense of the virtues, the Christ-like virtues that we are going to have or see in our lives in verses 12 through 17. So I encourage you to come back in our next session as we continue this study through the book of Colossians. And remember, we are like those sculptures of Michelangelo trapped in the blocks of marble and his hand is setting us free and he uses his word and his Holy Spirit to free us from the block of sin that holds us fast in so many ways. In Colossians 4 5, I want to send you out with this devotional out of the letter we've been studying of jump ahead a page or two. And out of Colossians 4 5, I just want to read this as a benediction as we close our time together. Conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Verse 6, let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how to respond to each person. Amen and amen. In grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will be with one another next time in our next session in the book of Colossians.